Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with Dr. Robert H. Lustig, talking about the latest science on processed foods. And guys, I hate to be a spoiler here, but this science is not looking too good. We're going to talk about what's going on with processed foods, why that is, and what we should do about it as parents of teenagers. Dr. Lustig is the author of the new book, Metabolical, The Truth About Processed Food and How It Poisons People and the Planet. He is the internationally acclaimed author of multiple books, including Fat Chance, Sugar Has 56 Names, The Fat Chance Cookbook, and The Hacking of the American Mind. He is emeritus professor of pediatrics in the division of endocrinology and member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF. He lectures globally and consults with numerous medical societies and policy organizations to improve population health. Really, really interested to speak with Dr. Lustig today about the latest research on processed foods. Robert, thank you so much for being here today. This is pretty exciting. You think a lot about processed food and the effects of processed food. Why is that? Why are you so interested in that? And why do you spend so much time and energy thinking and writing about it? Well, I didn't start out being an anti-processed food warrior. I basically started out taking care of short kids. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. Short kids got fat on me. And everyone was saying, well, you eat too much exercise, too little. And I believed that for a period of time because that's what everyone told me. That's what I learned in medical school, et cetera. But then I started doing research on the issue. And in 1995, I joined a whole stable, a whole cadre of about 40 children who had survived their brain tumors from surgery, radiation, et cetera. They were normal weight when they developed their tumor, but after Mm. their therapy, they became massively obese. Now, the faculty at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, pediatric cancer hospital. And there they had years earlier, George Bray, the father of obesity research in this country, took eight of these kids, which they're called hypothalamic obesity because of damage to the hypothalamus. He took eight hypothalamic obesity patients, admitted him to his unit at UCLA Harbor Medical Center, locked them up, threw away the key, and gave them 500 calories a day for a month. What do you think their weight did? It went up. It went up. 500 calories a day. that's ah, That's the paradox. How can you gain weight on 500 calories a day? The answer is because these kids would rather store it than burn it. These kids couldn't see the hormone in their blood, leptin. Now, leptin 
took 20 more years to be discovered. But at that point in time, Bray knew that their signals for satiety, their signals for energy sufficiency were not reaching the brain. And so the brain was ratcheting down the energy expenditure. They were actually burning less. So even on 500 calories a day, these kids were gaining weight. And I was faced with an entire clinic full of these kids. What am I going to do to help them? Now, in the literature, yeah, well, <laughs> that's kind of hard to do. Tell them to eat 400 calories a day. <laughs> Not exactly. Uh, in the literature, there is an experimental condition for animals, for rats, that's very similar, where you take an electrode and you put it in the hypothalamus and you buzz yeah. it. You, know, you, you cause okay. an electrolytic lesion. And, th and that right? reduces their it's, appetite. No, like it increases their appetite. And they burn less oh, and they wow. eat more. Okay, interesting. All right? yeah. So what had been shown mm. in the animals was that there was a connection between that hypothalamus and the pancreas. And if you cut that connection, which is the vagus nerve, the nerve that runs the entire length of your abdomen from the brain all the way through your abdomen, if you cut that vagus nerve, then they didn't gain weight. And their insulin levels, which were the driver of the weight gain, didn't go up. So I can't mm. cut a vagus nerve. I'm not a surgeon. What we did do was we gave them a drug that blocked insulin release, similar to what cutting the vagus nerve would do. So we gave them a drug that okay, yeah. suppressed their insulin down to normal. And lo and behold, what happened was these kids started losing weight, a lot of weight. But what was more wow. remarkable even than that was that these kids started exercising spontaneously. These were all kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos and slept. And now they're active. One kid mm. became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. These were kids who had lost all interest in life. And now they're returning to the world of the living. And the parents would say, you know, my kid is back. And the kid would say, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the clouds since the tumor. This was really remarkable. So we ended up doing mm -hmm. a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, not telling the kids what we were looking at, but we ended up measuring their intake and expenditure yeah. and their activity and their quality of life. And sure enough, if we got mm -hmm. the insulin down with this drug, not only did they lose weight, but their quality of life improved because their energy expenditure improved. These kids became more physically active. So what this proved to me was that the two behaviors that we associate with obesity, gluttony and sloth, yeah. are really actually biochemical, being driven by hormones. And mm. the problem was high insulin. Now, you asked me, how does this relate to ultra-processed food? Why do I think about yeah. that? Well, because you know these kids with yeah. the brain tumors, they're pretty rare, but everybody else has high insulin levels too. They have a phenomenon called insulin resistance. Their mm -hmm. insulin levels are sky high also without a brain tumor. And the question was, why is that? I so see. my next yeah. set of research over the course of the 2000s demonstrated that sugar, dietary sugar, the crystals, the stuff you put in your coffee, mm -hmm. sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, yeah. maple syrup, honey, agave, it 
caused that insulin problem. So it was the driver of the high insulin. And when we got the sugar out of kids' diets, oh. they started losing weight. And they started being more spontaneously mm. active also. So anything wow. that makes your insulin go up makes you a glutton and a sloth. And anything that brings oh. your insulin down brings you back to normal. Well, sugar is the primary ingredient in ultra-processed foods. And it has now been shown in many different studies in many different countries that ultra-processed food is the driver of chronic metabolic disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. That's 75% of all healthcare costs in the world, not just in America, but in the world. And sugar is the marker and ultra-processed food is yeah. the vehicle. And so this is why ultra-processed food is the problem. And this is why I spend a lot of time writing about it and railing against it. The sugar spikes the insulin and the insulin leads to the metabolic diseases. And you started noticing this link or this trend. It was interesting to me reading through your book because I always thought insulin is good. We want the insulin because that brings down the blood sugar and helps kind of normalize or stabilize or something. I always thought of insulin as being kind of the good guy. You want to encourage that insulin. I thought that was kind of the issue with diabetes was not having enough. You, know, you need more insulin. It's, it's, it's that, can't get enough of that stuff. So insulin is a good news, bad news hormone. Okay. Right? Okay. Interesting. You absolutely yeah. need insulin. If you don't have insulin, you have type one diabetes and that yeah. is very dangerous and very problematic. And I took care of loads of kids with type one diabetes over my career as a pediatric mm. endocrinologist. I have loads yeah. of type one diabetics who had to be on insulin, uh, you know, and there was no option. And even till this day, there's still no option. They have to be on oh. insulin. And I agree with that. Yeah. The question is how much insulin? Okay. Now, in the old days, which was just three years ago. <laughs> way back. The standard mantra from the American Diabetes Association was, eat anything you want, just take enough insulin to cover it. Hmm. This was a disaster. It's a complete and utter disaster. It's one of the reasons why type 2 diabetics get all the complications that they get with the retinopathy mm. and the neuropathy and the nephropathy and the cardiovascular disease and everything else. And it's well, because you kind of just, you monitor and if your blood sugar is getting a little too high, you take a little more insulin. If it's well, low, then you, you drink some soda. Well, the point is to not let the blood glucose go up in the first place. So you don't have to give the insulin. Yeah. So this is the problem. The problem is that you need your glucose down, but you also need your insulin down. The mm. glucose causes what we call microvascular disease, small vessel disease, like retinopathy, neuropathy, nephropathy, eye oh, disease, wow. nervous system disease, kidney disease. That's true. But the insulin is what causes the cardiovascular disease, the cancer, and the dementia. So you need both. I don't want any of that. Yeah. And the insulin. Okay. And the problem is that the American Diabetes Association continues even today to say that the problem is just a glucose problem. They don't 
recognize that the problem is also an insulin problem. Ah, so I've see. been okay. trying very hard to impress upon my colleagues, my society, the societies I belong to, my patients, how important it is to keep the insulin down. And the only way to do that is by changing the diet. Yeah. Well, can't you just exercise a lot? No, exercise is not enough. Exercise is valuable. I'm not going to argue that. Exercise is perhaps the second most important thing you can do for yourself. That's first being good. diet. First being fix the diet. Now, yeah. in my book, Metabolical, yeah. um, I, I list eight, count them, eight separate subcellular pathologies that contribute to chronic disease and aging. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just going to name them real quick for your audience. Glycation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, insulin resistance, membrane instability, inflammation, methylation, and autophagy. Now, these are processes that go on inside everybody's cells every single day. Yeah. But they can work right or they can work wrong. Mm. Now, if they're working right, you'll live to be 110 playing tennis. If they're working wrong, you'll be in a wheelchair with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your next stroke and everything in between, depending on how those eight pathologies are being managed. Wow. Now, exercise will fix four of those pathologies. Well, that's good. That's pretty. Oh, that's, that's nothing nice, wrong yeah. with exercise. Exercise is good. Yeah. But there are four pathologies that exercise won't fix. Yeah. It won't fix the glycation. It won't fix the oxidative stress. It won't fix the membrane instability. And it won't fix the methylation. Okay. Yes, it will fix the mitochondrial dysfunction. It will fix the it's insulin the autophagy. It will fix the inflammation. And it will fix the autophagy. So exercise is good. I'm not saying it's bad. It's good. But it's yeah. not enough. Yeah. Necessary, but not sufficient. You cannot outrun a bad diet. How many of those eight can nutrition improve? All of them. All eight. That's that's pretty good. And more importantly, those eight are not druggable. There's no medicine for any of those eight. Oh, okay. But they're all foodable. You can <laughs> fix those with food. And that's the point is if you understand why what you put in your mouth is so important in terms of your general health, your longevity, your cognition, your uh, capabilities, your mental health, then people will start gravitating toward the stuff that's healthy. Right now, they're gravitating toward the stuff that makes them feel good short term. You know, mm. It's giving them pleasure. That's giving them a dopamine hit. Okay, Sugar, caffeine, alcohol, street drugs. Bottom line is we are a dopamine society and that's sort of the antithesis of metabolic health. What's the deal with fiber? You talk a lot about it and kind of made me think about it in a different way in your book. Why is it so important? So fiber is the nutrient you don't absorb. Now, mm. you would say to me, wait a second, uh, if you don't absorb it, how can it be a nutrient? Right. Because it's not a nutrient for you. It's a nutrient for your bacteria. It's a nutrient for your microbiome. Each of us is 10 trillion cells 
except we have 100 trillion bacteria in our intestine. Our bacteria outnumber us 10 to 1. Each of us wow. is really just a big bag of bacteria with lungs. <laughs> now, those bacteria have to eat something. Well, what do they eat? Right. Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? Right. Now, yeah, okay. If you do not feed your bacteria, your bacteria will eat feed on you. We, we don't want to strip the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, mm. leading to irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, leaky gut, transport of bad proteins like cytokines and, and, and lipopolysaccharides, which are inflammatory, across from the intestine into your bloodstream, driving systemic inflammation, insulin resistance, and all those chronic metabolic diseases I talked about. So keeping your microbiome happy is job one. Okay. You have to feed your gut. And that's what half the book is about, is explaining why you have to feed your gut. Well, what does the gut eat? It eats fiber. Those bacteria mm. can chew up fiber. We can't. In addition, those bacteria will make short-chain fatty acids out of the fiber. And short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, propionate, are anti-inflammatory. They actually keep our inflammation down, which is good for longevity and good for metabolic functioning. And the fiber sets up a gel on the inside of your intestine. When you okay. swallow food with fiber, like fruit, I'm yeah. sure it has sugar, but it also has way more fiber. That fiber, and there are two kinds, soluble and insoluble, and you need both. The okay. soluble fiber is like pectins, like what holds jelly together. Okay. The yeah. insoluble fiber is like cellulose, the stringy stuff in celery. Okay? okay. Fruit has both. Almonds have both. Okay. Vegetables have both. Okay. Pretty much anything that comes out of the ground has both. Okay. That's why yeah. you have to eat what comes out of the ground uh, is to get that fiber. Point is that the insoluble fiber, the cellulose, the stringy stuff in celery will act like a lattice work, like a fishnet on the inside of your intestine. The yeah. soluble fiber, they're globular. They're like, you know, spheres. They plug the holes in the fishnet. And together, they form this impenetrable secondary barrier in your hmm. intestine that prevents glucose, fructose, simple starches from getting into the bloodstream. Hmm. And in doing so, you keep your blood glucose down and therefore you keep your insulin down. And that's the goal. Keep the insulin down. Fiber is the best way to keep your insulin down. So it's like a time release coating yeah. for sort your of, uh, food. It's sort of like a tiny time release pill thing. That's right. And here's the best news. If you don't absorb it early because the fiber's there, that means the food will go further down the intestine into the next part called the dry. Right. And yeah. what's there? The bacteria. And the bacteria will chew it up for its purposes. So you've mm -hmm. ended up feeding your gut without feeding you. So even though you ate it, even though it registered as calories passing your lips, yeah. if you didn't absorb it, it it's wasn't for you. Too much good. Yeah. Okay. So fiber is the nutrient you don't absorb. Fiber mm -hmm. is the nutrient that's not for you, but it's a nutrient, but it's not for you. It's for your bacteria, but you have to feed your bacteria. So 
we throw the fiber in the garbage. We juice the fruit, throw the fiber in the wastebasket. That yeah. is the single worst thing we can do. We're taking something positive and we're getting rid of it. And we're yeah. allowing the thing in the juice that's negative, the sugar, free reign, free access to uh, raise our yeah. blood glucose, raise our fructose, raise yeah, our yeah. insulin, cause chronic metabolic disease, and we die early. You have an interesting section in your book about fluoride. Why do you talk about that? <laughs> well, the main reason I wrote about fluoride is to explain how the dentists got it wrong. So in my book, oh. I am an equal opportunity offender. Yeah. I take the doctors to task. I take the dietitians to task. <laughs> and I take the hey, we're here with Dr. Robert Lustig talking about the latest research on processed foods and what it means for parents of teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. The problem is we say breakfast is the most important meal of the day and then we poison kids doing it. Yeah. That's the problem. So, so, so if kids sugar. ate a rational breakfast, like yeah. bacon and eggs or uh, steel-cut oats, or yogurt with pieces of real fruit in it without the extra added sugar that the commercial yogurt industry puts in it, or something like that, kids would do fine. The thing I'm really railing against is school birthday parties. Ooh, what? No, you bring some cupcakes. Yeah, uh, cupcakes. Well, soda, right? yeah, you bring some, you know, exactly. some two liter. So every, every teacher in America juice. knows that as soon as the cupcakes come out, that's the end of class for the rest of the day because the kids are going to totally. be bouncing oh, yeah. off walls and they're not going to be able to focus. Okay, So they all wait till the end of the day. The point is, every day is some kid's birthday. Parents and kids have to realize that the biggest fast food franchise in the world is public school. And we wow. need to do something yeah. about it. We've actually started a nonprofit called Eat Real, very specifically to get real food into K-12 schools around the country. We're in 514 schools right now in three states, in multiple districts. And the goal is to try to expand that and develop this business model in order for schools to be able to bring kids freshly cooked hot meals where we can control the ingredients as opposed to Ooh. the standard ultra-processed food that we currently get from Cisco or McDonald's or Pizza Hut or wherever else. So we need to fix the diet inside schools to help kids learn and to improve their metabolic and mental health. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.